This is Time Tees Television, broadcasting to North East England and North Yorkshire from the Burnhope, Pontop Pike and associated transmitters of the Independent Broadcasting Authority. The story of the 1991 Eurovision Song Contest is perfect for the On Europe podcast, because it's just as mental as both I and you are. But before you start and go, but Phil, Eurovision again have already shown us 1991, yes, yes they have, and that's fine. In the same way that other sites write about the same rehearsals, you still come here for your fix of the strange though, don't you? That, and I'd already scripted about 4,000 words, so both of you can sit and listen, can't you? It all starts 30 years ago when the jurors of Europe decided that a song about the single European market would be a worthy winner in the European year of tourism. You couldn't make it up, could you? 149 points later, including a naught from Eurosceptic United Kingdom, meant that Rye were in the inenviable position of hosting the Festival of Popular Song and, naturally, they decided that the song contest should be held in its spiritual home, San Remo, specifically at the Teatro Ariston to make a complete circle of life. Sadly for Rye, however, world events conspired against them. Saddam Hussein proceeded to invade Kuwait, not as a direct consequence of Rai winning the contest and was stressed, but it did threaten the peace of the world and the togetherness that Toto had lovingly sung about. At about the same time, closer to home in the Balkans, Yugoslavia was beginning its final phase of the long descent into its constituent republics. With the tensions ramping up in both locations, Rai decided, in a shrewd move, to shift the contest to somewhere safer, Rome. However, they did this in the January of 1991, rather than at a somewhat earlier stage, which meant that preparations would have been quite well advanced, you'd have thought, in San Remo, and zero preparation would have taken place in Rome, which meant that someone, somewhere, would have to build a contest from the ground up in four months, including security, and get a venue. In Italy. And with their national trade of speediness and all, it was bound to be OKO. History does not record how hard Rai tried to get a decent venue in Rome, but it does record what they ended up with. Stage 15 at Cinecittà. This would be like putting the contest on in Pinewood Studios back in the UK, perfectly fine for cinema, but completely and utterly unuser-friendly for shoehorning in television paraphernalia, a stage, camera, full orchestra and an audience and commentators. It might well have been 1963 in most Italians' head, but in the real world, it clearly wasn't. When it went to air, the contest didn't even want to start, with the tedium being played two and a half times before a gut-wrenching pause... and the title card and opening film then appeared. This then set the tone for the evening to follow. That opening film, by the way, entitled Celebration, was an American-Italian woman named Sarah Carlson, miming a song very deliberately through some Roman ruins with some backing dancers, all totally unnecessary. And that gave way to our host, both of Italy's winners, on the same stage too.
Toto sung his song, and for values of sung, I clearly mean warbled, and then in his first but by no means last unscripted interruption, started singing Didiola's song and whilst playing the old piano as well. The songs must be on soon though, right? Well, no, actually not. San Remo was then lauded and applauded for not hosting the contest, but providing some rather nice flowers for the occasion. The orchestra was introduced and then, finally immersively, we were on to the songs. Well, not before they'd explained that the postcards this year would be the talent singing some Italian aria or populist song. At 15 minutes after 8 o'clock British summertime, we were off. And what better country to open a contest that was cobbled together at short notice than a country falling apart at its seams? Yugoslavia, or at least the bits of it that were still speaking to each other, were drawn first, presumably with the hope that the Federation could cling together on the wings of some for the three hours the contest would run for without breaking apart completely. Sadly, however, the Yugoslav jurors decided to vote along Republican lines in their final, and the result was that Baby Doll, who was neither a baby at 27 or anywhere near doll-like, was sent to Rome. The song, entitled Brazil, was on paper an up-tempo little ditty with samba and rumba rhythms, but as soon as you delve under the surface you see it for what it really is, a collection of words thrown together to fit a tune. The composer runs out of ideas at the start of the song. Which doesn't bode well, and the opening two lines are... You know you're in trouble. It's not the best lyrical masterpiece in the world, and it's performed rather than sung by Baby Doll, whose eyes seem to tell a story of their own, i.e. one of caffeine, cocaine and cigarettes, which could be the title of her memoir, actually, rather than being a bright star. The backing singers, who do nothing to aid the performance, are motionless behind her, but the real star here is one Danimir Vise, who, dressed in his purple top with Brazil emblazoned on it in sequins, not Campatolo, dear me, no, dances his way with two other female dancers who I've just noticed, through this dire three minutes doing all sorts of moves that wouldn't look out of place in an exercise video of the period. It is, though, the old trick of distracting you from a rubbish song, but it doesn't. And I'm left with a sense of relief and hope that when Danimir lifts up Baby Doll at the end, he would drop her on her... But, alas, no. One point. And shockingly, this didn't come last. So after your senses have been attacked by Baby Doll, what you need is a soothing ballad to calm your nerves, and thankfully, that's what we have next. Stefan gave us this three years earlier. And has, thankfully, learned from his mistake. But in late 1990, he teamed up with the Pat Cash bandana-wearing Ify, who'd written this song and convinced the Icelandic jurors that their song about the girl of their dreams called Nina was the one. This song is almost excellent. It has a great little tune, is not oversold, in fact quite the opposite if anything, it's too understated and performed really well. (laughs) 
it's just terribly dull. And because it has nothing to shout home about, does, therefore, have nothing to be remembered for when the jurors come to cast their votes. From a television viewer perspective, it turns you off from the start with the hideous styling or consulting choices the sextet were wearing. The boys in purple and green and the female backing singers in what can only be described as dresses covered in unicorn sick. Stefan has the misfortune of singing out of the side of his mouth through this, which properly grates on my nerves, but I suspect no one else even saw it or noticed it. Or until about now. 25 points with a 10 from Sweden meant that this finished in 15th place. A shame when a couple of tweaks could have made it much better. Malta had been away from this contest since 1975 when they thought that this would win. If things shouldn't go right, your stars are not twinkling so bright. Don't cry for what's the use. And in my mind it should have. They'd enter the contest in 71 and 72 as well. Those two being in Maltese. But as that's not so much a language, more a collection of random letters with the word fuck spelt F-U-Q thrown in for shits and giggles, they didn't bother the scorers that much. Sixteen years later and PBS were back, this time deciding to go with the island's second official language English and what an inspired choice that was. Confusingly, though, the duo seem to forget that Georgina has a surname, but Paul does. Interesting, and to me, it says a lot more about their relationship than anyone likes to admit. I plant this seed because Georgina's surname is a Baylor, a common surname on an island with only five surnames, but it's only that through marriage to one of the composers. Starting a conspiracy, me. Shadows fall, it's so lonely waiting here. There's a garden bear out there. To be totally fair, I don't need to start a conspiracy to explain this song. It's supposed to be a love song and Georgina already married Dirty Bitch, where it seems that the lovers have fell out over a misunderstanding and they wonder if their love is real or let's pretend. Let's pretend is at an end. Can you play let's pretend? Yes, another reference you're going to have to Google. Anyway. Moving on, I don't really buy the fact that these two are lovers, and it's an early example of a duet being sung by two singers trying to upstage each other. Many, many years before that, and we hear the introduction of both the Maltese rhyming dictionary and misheard Maltese lyrics. What's that again, Mary? So Paul and Georgina, or is it Swiss Tony and Pauline Collins, wended their way to the end of the song, which doesn't really have a climax, and scored a mind-boggling 106 points with two 12s from Sweden and Ireland to finish a very creditable sixth place. Even back in 1991, the Greeks liked to whip up some hysteria about their songs. This was, it is said, their best chance of winning the whole damn thing since they had started entering.
Sophia entered the song Eanixi, Spring in English, to ERT, who, being cash-strapped, had a national final with pre-recorded vocals and music. I mention this as a fact because it will become relevant in the real contest soon enough and in this podcast presently. Off they went to Rome with hopes held high for this song, and I'm sure that the rehearsals all went fine, because rehearsals are for problems to be ironed out, yes? So she strode onto the stage on the Saturday night and started singing, and it's not that bad. The song isn't my cup of tea, but I can certainly see why it should do well, and for the first, what, 72 seconds it all went according to plan. However, it is at this point where the wheels fall off quite spectacularly. According to the preview video, there should be a sax solo that goes something like this. However, when the Rise Orchestra saxophonist plays, it sounded like this. As an ex-woodwind player myself who's had something very similar happen to him, it's bloody awful because you can't just stop, you have to carry on and get to the end of it but it's all made even worse for him by having the camera pointed directly at him as the notes failed to come out of his instrument. Those 18 seconds must have felt like a lifetime. For Sophia though, she's got to gather herself and get through the second half of the song, and let's give her credit here. She does, but this is one of those rare occasions where a performance has no control over the song she's singing. Thirty-six points and thirteenth place clearly left a scar. There's an urban myth that Sophia tried to belt the saxophonist and had to be restrained from doing so when going off the stage. If true, nobody can blame her. So here we are, five songs in, and we finally get to the first so-called normal song of 1991. The Swiss have been going through a decidedly dodgy time of late, except when they asked Attila Sereftuk to write them a song, of course. Without him, they were either doing very well or very badly, and they were recovering from a very badly. Their national final was a cakewalk for Sandra Simo, who scored full points from the five juries, thereby answering last podcast's question of knowing anybody else who'd done that, bitch. The Italian cantons had always been criminally underrepresented by the Swiss, so much so that this would be only the sixth completely Italian language entry in the 36 contests to date, but as the contest itself would be in Italy, it seemed a natural fit. As I alluded to earlier, the first four songs in this contest could not be described as typical 90s Eurovision, but this one had all the ingredients of a song that would do well with the jurors. Musically, it's typical of the late 80s ballads that have served so well. Sandra is an accomplished performer. The lyrics of the song are about her telling her lover not to go and to hold her tight. Now we can see where Rollo and King got their inspiration from. I'll never ever let you go. Or maybe not. From a 2020 perspective, while it's all the things that make a juror sit up and take notice, 
It's all performed very statically, some would say clinically, by Sandra, who's standing literally 20mm from the microphone, which isn't a good look. And it's dreadfully staged, with Sandra at the front of the stage, and her backing singers at least 10 yards behind her, and none of them move a muscle either. We can either blame it on the limitations of 1991 microphones, or, as I'd like to, blame it on the fact that there was no staging concept for these kind of songs. In retrospect, if Sandra was at, say, a piano or nearer the backing singers, that would help, but it really seems as though RSI thought this should all be about Sandra and put hardly any thought into how it looked, because that didn't matter a jot in the final recording. Competence over substance with juries always wins out, and so it proved with 118 points, with two 12s, one from Luxembourg and one from Belgium, leading to a totally adequate fifth place. Stagecraft and staging could have propelled this a little bit further, though, I suspect. Let's make no bones about this. Austria are totally and utterly rubbish at the Eurovision Song Contest. They've only got two wins on the board, both through artistes that had very little in the way of competition in their respective contests. Put ORF in a contest with some decent songs, and they flail about aimlessly like someone trying to bat a wasp away from their face. This year's insect swatter-in-chief was one Thomas Forstner. He'd actually booked the trend two years ago when he sung this. Only a song, to finish in fifth place. He knew then what a good song sounded like. Sadly, however, two years later, one can only assume that he'd been hit over the head with something hard to cause amnesia, because this shower of shit he ended up singing was nothing like a good song. As with so many bad things, it starts with the styling o consulting, which was clearly lacking, as they put the boy in a purple jumpsuit with some sort of spangly waistcoat thing to distract you, and boy do your ears need distracting. So what are the song about then, Phil, I hear precisely none of you cry. Well, thanks for asking. It's about Thomas seemingly stalking a beautiful woman around one of the loveliest cities in the world while getting drenched because it's pissing it down. Musically, the verses are all very GCSE music, with the choruses also being used as a bridge to a key change later on in the song. Thomas also has a very awkward note to sing in each of those four choruses, though. You'd never guess Thomas was dying on his arse, though, because this fake smile is getting more and more like a grimace as the song gets to a very stodgy and predictable climax. The boy has been hung out to dry, as it were, for literally nothing. Zero points. I literally can't think of a single thing to say about Luxembourg, so I've tasked one of my brilliant team of writers to do this bit. There was a time when Luxembourg at Eurovision was the sleekest of luxury vehicles. So much so, that in the late 1990s people were looking out for great things for them, even though they stopped actually sending songs. We joined them in Rome at a point where the car had gone a bit vintage and was sounding less bang bang and increasingly chitty chitty. Bang, an bang, 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 
borrowed singer for this year was Sarah Bray from Belgium, who doesn't have a Wikipedia page. That's not a good sign. The song? A perfectly nice love song about a vole, possibly. Nice gets nice reviews and ultimately nice points. Ten juries placed them between 6th and 10th, nobody higher, and so they got a nice place of 14th, which was, I imagine, nice. Nice, however, is not immune from the orchestra fucking this song up as well, it seems. Carola clearly proves that she is the embodiment of Dorian Gray. In 1983, she claimed she was 16, and so, in 1991, when she claimed she was only 24, we all know she was lying. There was no way she wasn't at least 30. Anyway, whatever god she prays to at the moment clearly blessed her with a baby-faced complexion and the singing voice of an angel. It also blessed her with working with some of decent Swedish songwriters as well, and for Melody Festival in 1990, she teamed up with Stefan Berg. only for the juries in a power cut to deny her victory. Her revenge would be instant, though. She kept faith with Berg and won the next Melody Festival in at a canter with Fongad Avon Storm Wind, captured by a love storm. You can tell they're written by the same songwriter, too, as they're both incredibly similar and seemingly written to a formula. From Sweden, who'd have thunk that? Anyway, the country who literally invented Styling O Consulting seems that the consultants on said styling were fans of pantomime, or taking the piss out of fans for the contest, because they dressed Corolla in a green Peter Pan outfit, thereby accentuating the fact that she'll never grow old. Even for someone allegedly 24, she bounces all over the stage with the two backing dancers in tow, and for a song that does the bare minimum that it has to do. Verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. It's the performance that Corolla gives that's the impressive bit here. I tend to use the phrase polishing a turd in a disparaging way, but this is a shiny example of what a performer can do with substandard goods. Sell it well, and more importantly believe it, and people will tend to vote for you because you're daring them not to. Someone else at that school of thought was Amina. She performed the arse of this song as well, as if to say, well, if Carola can make you vote for her with that shit, with this different flavoured shit, I can do the same. There's a section, a rather large section, of the Eurovision fan community who will tell you until they beat you into submission that the so-called quality song, this one, should have been the real winner of the Eurovision Song Contest 1991. It's like comparing apples with pears in many respects, and I'd like to think that Amina is pears in that comparison for no reason whatsoever, really. They're both songs, or fruits, or whatever. They both last three minutes. They both have elements that make you vote for them. They are both very of the country they represent. Amina spends the whole three minutes being art, with a bit of music thrown in, rather than the other way around. 
and the musical component is definitely Middle Eastern orientated, and yet it's French to its core, with the accordionist coming in two-thirds of the way through the song. All he needed was a beret and a string of onions around his neck, and he could be in Paris or Marseille or wherever. Whereas Corolla hit your Schlager muscle quite hard three contest minutes ago and screamed Eurovision at you visually, and she was very Swedish in the performance. I get being punched in the Schlager muscle. I understand the point of it. I understand the bits of me that quiver in excitement even at this. What I don't understand, and it probably started with Amina, is music which says, vote for me because your conscience tells you to, because your other choice is too direct. All her wailing and parading about and interacting with Toulouse-Lautrec on the accordion in the corner is equally as direct as Dandini jumping about was. The little sprite that could was actively going for the jury vote by saying, this is Eurovision. Amina just looked very French, shrugged her shoulders at the juries and said, vote for me, or don't, I don't care. 146 points each, four 12s each. Corolla won by having five 10 points to Amina's two. That was the rules at the time. People since point to if the contest was run with the current rules, Amina would have won. It wasn't. It was run with the rules of the 1991 contest. The rules which meant that a Schlager goddess won the contest and became a Eurovision leviathan. I suspect Amina, for a multitude of reasons, wouldn't have done the same. This is my guilty pleasure. Well, it shouldn't be guilty, but hey. 25 years before this... ...was a twisting sensation, we had these three trying to do it in Turkish. The song was nearly killed at its inception by TRT being inept in its national final. Thankfully, the eight regional juries overlooked that fact that the sound engineer probably just lost their job and voted this as the best song in that final. In between that and what was to come in Rome, of which more in a bit, Turkish radio and television were bound to produce a music video to promote their song and took every opportunity to show off bits of Turkey, namely Anatolia, Ankara, Istanbul and the mountains. And in a move that literally zero other broadcasters have ever copied, they coned off a lane of a massive bridge and had the trio twisting and dancing on said bridge to the amusement of the normals travelling in the other direction. This avalanche of awfulness continued unabated. There are, if you look hard enough, videos of this song being rehearsed in Rome. I know, it proves at least one song did have some preparation, and it doesn't look half bad either, and it sounds note perfect on every one, and no, they've not been doctored. Come the Saturday night, though, the thing you don't want to happen to you just before you perform your song in front of Gina Lola Brigida and an audience of several is for a host to completely overtake the start of your song by going off script trying to pronounce the title. Come on, la turca, no? Ichi da chica. No, no. Ichi da chica. Ichi da chica. No. Ichi da chica. For fuck's sake, Toto, it's two words, and your playful attempt at saying it wrong is just annoying like so much else you would do this evening. I do think an unharassed performance would not have done any better than the one they gave. Hi, 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 
There are so many other strong songs in this contest, this really isn't one of them. Let's lay our cards on the table and say that. Any hope of finding a jury willing to vote highly for this was slim at best. 44 points, with two eights, one of them from the clearly biased Italian jury, left this in 12th place. When it comes to the public's choice of song for this or any other contest, I am 99.9% .9 of the time of the opinion that the right song won, and those who say that song X is the real winner of the contest get short shrift, usually with the phrase no, the winner is the one with the most points. There are, however, very, very limited exceptions to that point of view. Oh look, here comes one now. Liam Riley, remember him from 1990? Well, one of his backing singers in Zagreb was Kim Jackson, and she must have impressed him enough that he decided that if for his next assault on the Eurovision, it would be through her and not him bashing on the piano forte. The problem was that the Irish selection, Eurosong 91, was going to be a bloodbath. Irish songwriters knew that they could do well internationally with a good song, they'd come second after all last year, and were just about to enter their Oh My God It's Eurosong Fever Ted imperious phase at the contest. What happened on March the 30th 1991 should be called Eurosong 91 The Mugging at Donnybrook. As the visual evidence has been removed from YouTube, my memory and some embellishing are to follow. Four songs strode away from the pack and finished in a heap within seven points of each other. There was a dead heat to top the board, with Kim Jackson and Jane Hennessy tied on 93 points. To break the tie, Ireland had a mechanism that was different and only ever used on this one occasion. For years, the presenter of Eurosong had told us that in case of a tie, there will be a final jury asked to break the tie. The tie jury, if you will, no, not sat in Bangkok, but in TV centre Dublin. They were basically asked one question. Jane and her faultless vocal, or Liam Riley's protégé who had balls up the high notes in a song so Lord knows what she'd do in Rome. Five weeks later, we got to find out. Turns out that all the practice she had meant that she still ballsed up the high notes. The performance as a whole comes across as somewhat underwhelming, and Kim looks very uncomfy when put out front to sing in front of several million people. Her eyes never look once down the camera and in fact are looking anywhere else. She's supposed to be singing a love song, but it all feels very cold and robotic, and the backing singers don't help because they're as wooden as boards as well and don't blend at all. It all smacks of her being hung out to dry and fend for herself, and when push comes to shove, she didn't. Equal 10th place with 47 points, probably left RTE wondering why on earth a spare jury was a good idea at all. The Eurovision Song Contest has long been a proving ground for international stars, and 1991 was no different. No, I don't mean the massive god-shaped Corolla mothership that's already been on. In this case, I mean the somewhat understated Dulce Pontish. At this point in her career, she was only 21 and had been acting on stage. She'd entered the Festival de Cancao. Yes, I've lifted my arms up to make sure I'm not having a stroke. With a song extolling the virtues of Portugal's national song, The Fado, which at that point was going through somewhat of a downturn in popularity. Talking of that final, 
I read that the winner was decided by the votes of 22 regional juries. Bloody hell, that must have felt like an eternity. Mind you, with this coming second, the juries might well have been on the old Vino Verde from the start. Anyway, back to Rome, and Dulce's song about songs that talk about slitting your wrists is a genuinely lovely slice of 90s Eurovision. The song itself is subtly understated, but sung really well, thereby proving the old adage that you actually need a good song held water back in 1991 the same as it does now. I suspect that Portuguese is the problem here, as there aren't many non-Portuguese lucophone singers across Europe, if you know any, please don't let me know. And it does at the best of times sound harsh, but Dulce has softened it enough for points to be forthcoming. I have, again, asked my superb writing team with giving me something to say about Liga de Fior Hiet at Slaw, preferably without me actually having to say Liga de Fior Hiet at Slaw. You can see where this is going, can't you? Denmark basically made a complete balls-up of their selection process. In the first instance, when Bertha Keir says, can I house Eurovision, you say, yes, yes you can, end of story. But no, DR insisted on having a Melody Grand Prix, including Bertha, a culturally questionable song about a train ride to China, which we would have had no difficulties in talking about. And the aforementioned, oh god not again, Liga de Fior Hiet at Slaw. And many more, well, seven more. For some reason, they decided they were going to send Liga de Fior Hiet at Slaw, possibly because they hate podcasters and Toto. When it got to Rome, the now sadly dead Anders Franzen sang the first verse mostly at the piano clearly favouring the why-should-I-let-this-bunch-of-jokers-bugger-up-my-song-when-I-can-do-it-myself school of thought. He then gets up for the camera to reveal that not only was he clearly in beige, the backing singers and the song were all in the same shade of beige. Quite rightly, this got punished accordingly when the votes came in. A language that sounds like someone's gargling is hardly ever a good thing, with the notable exception of this. But this song was not that. It scored 8 points, 5 from Sweden and 3 from Norway, to end up in a very lowly 19th place. Talking of Norway, 1991 was supposed to be a good year for them. Not only had they had a rotten time in 1990, where they judged the mood of the contest correctly, by singing a song about the Brandenburg Gate, but they misjudged the competency of the person singing it and finished 21st. So they went into 1991 with all the vim and vigour you would expect. 
until the Committee of Television Execs sat down and heard the 140 songs that had been submitted. They couldn't find one, let alone eight, to present to the Norwegian public and therefore declared them all unsuitable, or as we now say, shit, and decided to commission their own song and singers to sing it. They approached ex-Eurovision winner Hannah Krogh and ex-Icelandic debutante Eric Hawke, without his plastic fork, naturally, to sing the song. Sure, they said. Could we bring a couple of our mates in as well? Yeah, so they did. Prog rock sensation Jan Groth and some other woman called Marianne Antonsen. NRK then declared themselves happy with Mrs. Thompson and presented it to the Norwegian public in a fait accompli television programme headed by Jan Teigen, of all people, instead of Melding Grand Prix 1991. <laughs> The most obvious thing to say here is that if NRK declared themselves happy with this, what on earth were the other 140 actually like? Don't get me wrong, I love this song because it's bouncy and light and the group can all clearly sing and etc. It's just that the story of a normal woman doing normal things normally isn't really the kind of thing that the contest's famous for. It's certainly a novel approach, but NRK shouldn't have tinkered with the arrangement between Oslo and Rome. To my ear, the song has been Eurovisioned in that arrangement. The light rock sound of the orchestration has been flattened out and any musical interest has been drained away in an attempt to sound like every other song in 1991. The net result? Egg all over NRK's smug chops, that's what. It got 14 points, with a 6 from the Icelandic jury, probably because of Eric, the high point. Surprisingly, NRK have never decreed any other entries to be shit ever again. Through doing the research for these podcasts, and yes I do do some despite the appearance of me just sitting at my microphone and talking you to death from time to time, you get to see the transformations of some songs between the national final and their place in the pantheon of Eurovision greats. This one, for example, started life as a song in the Israeli selection, Kadam Eurovision 1991. I'm sure 1991 is in Hebrew, but I'm not going to pronounce it. It has the same ingredients you saw when you watched the Eurovision again a few weeks ago. However, in its first incarnation, the banging singers are not entirely off stage and are definitely not singing. What a gig, eh? Come on, watch the talent prance about in all their lovely needlepoint tops. Join them for the last minute of the song and everyone thinks you've been part of it. Not sure whether it's money for old rope or being frozen out of it, but the Kadam performance does seem very cold and clinical. I also know that in the reprise of the Kadam final, the orchestra goes a bit wrong. Talk about having a technical run through the show, eh, listeners? By the time this got to Rome, it was a hot favourite, mainly on the back of it being Israeli and up-tempo and sideways struck-tastic and etc., and one would have expected some sort of fine-tuning for the stage and the musicians and the television and the fact that Stage 15 in Chinichita was several acres bigger than the ICC in Jerusalem, but it seems that the IBA took its embryonic song, packaged it up, sent it to Rome first class and did precisely nothing with it. 
Apart from if the backing singers the obligatory ten yards behind the talent, and they still did nothing for the first two minutes before joining them in the typically Israeli finish to the song. All of this clearly resonated somehow with the juries, and it ended up in third place, a mere seven points behind the top two, and would end up being the closest Israel would get until Dana International minced her way to the top in Birmingham. If Austria are rubbish at this contest, then so are Finland, arguably even more so. They'd finished last six times in the contest's history, including last year with those Swedish Finns, so the only way was up, yeah? Their national selection had two of Finland's better placed artists in it, with Ricky Reggae OK Salsa and Kirka raising the overall points average, but it doesn't look a great national final. It does, however, smell more than a little rigged. The eventual runner-up, a song called Peggy, which sounds like this. and Hüdelgeur were clearly the top two songs. The jurors, all of whom gave a song a score out of 12 altogether at the end of the performances, were broadly in agreement, but two jurors, Ossie Runner and the Tina Pettersson from Free, both gave mysteriously low marks to Peggy and tens to the winner. They were also sitting next to each other. Was there some chicanery? Who knows, but it doesn't look good. Also, when you look at their scores, they have a very similar ring to them. No, I'm just saying, I'm just putting that out there. So the Finns sent a song about a woman who had a one-night stand, but when she reflects on it, we'd like to spend more time with him. What is it with Scandics and Nordics and their liberal attitude? The performance gets off to a rocky start, not because of Kaya, but because of Toto, who decides to interject some <laughs> fun into proceedings by liberally and deliberately mispronouncing the title of the song. Ooh, oh, that jolly japester's fun literally knows no boundaries, does it? Anyway, Kaya comes back onto stage in a purple dress and sings a song with a little swaying and a little bit of emoting, but it's all very finished and reserved. except for the backing singers who clearly are earning double time for the evening because they turn to a bit of interpretive dance, which clearly isn't shown by the Italian director that much, and instead focuses on Kaya, whose national trait of being an emotionless and soulless bitch is coming to the fore. Instead of making you think she wants this man or woman for something other than a role in the hay, she just makes it look featureless and to my eyes isn't emoting or doing anything to sell the song. It's not that Kai doesn't have a great voice or the material she's ended up with is poor either, because in the context of this contest, it really isn't that bad. I just get the feeling that the jurors forgot to vote for it because it's just not memorable enough. It scored six points, a four and two ones, but that still shocks me because it's so low, and there's an argument that it should have beaten at least six or seven of these, but that's an argument you can often make for Finland. Just like sunlight out of a rain, hope that things come to play again, then light this night up into flame. 
Just his dancing fiddling bow brings to life for sleepy toes in this old bar till morning blows. If you remember the 1990 episode, which I'm sure you do because I've already mentioned it, you will have learned the cautionary tale of Chris and Daniel, who were talking about their country's upcoming unification through the medium of song, and how well that turned out. Well, with full unification in the autumn of 1990, songwriters turned once again to songs of peace and unity and brotherhood and etc. The German final of 1991, held in a concert hall in Old East Berlin, had its fair share of songs about the same. In a bizarre twist on televoting, the German television decided to use the votes of 1,000 German citizens who would input their votes through keypads. At least that's the explanation the host gives. I was hoping that a bank of workers would be frantically going through the phone book, but that doesn't seem to be the case. The result, though, was a bit divisive. When the Weindorf family, singing under the name of Atlantis 5000, were announced as winners, there was a lot of booing in the audience. The runner-up was clearly the favourite of the crowd. The Weindorf sung and the broadcast promptly ends, presumably before the wall can be re-erected. Auf der Suche nach der Freiheit ließen wir uns They went to Rome with this ringing in their ears, and despite the good intentions of the songwriters, who were also part of the group, to embed the fact that the dream of reunification can never die and we must all do whatever it takes, the international jury saw it for what it was. A great idea performed by six members of the same family very amateurishly. Painfully so when you watch 1991 back. To me, there are better ways of getting across the fact that they should all pull together, but getting this very simply composed song with no idea where it should go musically isn't one of them. Those self-same jurors thought that it was a pile of old shite, giving it ten points and six of them were from Denmark, who clearly thought some sympathy was needed. Someone at VRT clearly had time to fill in their schedule back in March of 91, because it seems that Clouseau, the band, not the inspector, filled a certain amount of television time on a Saturday night with what basically amounts to a song for Clouseau. The band, not the inspector, Wikipedia tells me, says they sung lots of songs in this show actually entitled Euro Clouseau. I can hear you groaning from here, but keep with me. They sung three new ones and decided to choose Top as the one that they would take forward to Rome. Yes, the concept of a national final clearly passing them by, but VRT filled airtime, so I guess it's all good. As an aside, I quite like to hear the song entitled Hilda to see it as an homage to either Hilda Ogden or Hilda Baker, but I suspect neither. Hilda, After having written this, as you've just heard, I found it. And it wasn't. What a letdown. The song, however, is about a guy trying to woo a girl who's already in a relationship by saying leave him and come back to me. All very liberal from our continental chums there. But this kind of thing never ends well, both in life and in song. The arrangement has also been tweaked from their selection to Rome, but I personally think that the old arrangement (laughs) 
is considerably better than the contest version. Mind you, that orchestra in Rome have fucked up enough songs during the evening already, so it might as well be somebody else's turn. Despite the brothers and the drummer giving this a great performance, the jurors on the night decided there were better songs, and by better songs I mean songs that sound less like your Uncle Bert slurring his words at your cousin's wedding. They gave this only 23 points, nowhere near enough for a good up-tempo song, which left them in 16th place. VRT will come back two years later, and many people wish they hadn't. There are times when even the most ardent viewer of the old Eurovision gets their jockeys in a twist about a song, and for me, in this contest, it's this one, Spain. Even the postcard makes me want to punch Sergio in the face, as he sings some Italian song with a gravelly voice which isn't sexy, but makes you think he's got phlegm in the throat, and I didn't mean the Belgians. I genuinely don't know what I have against the song. I mean, it's an archetypal Iberian love song sung by a long-haired, swarthy Iberian, which should be right up my street, and visually, yes, it is. I just don't get the song at all. Lyrically, it's very sensual, talking about dancing next to each other and caressing their skin. There's also a not very failed reference to a cock and vagina in the lines You're dancing in your volcano and two metres from you I'm dancing on the pole. Clearly a reference to socially distant voyeurism there then. I guess that if there is an invisible line between confidence and arrogance, Sergio crosses it many times by all his winking to camera and pleading for votes and when I couple that with all the overtly sex pesty references, this song makes me go ugh out loud from the very start. The juries of 1991 were not me though, and though it was just the right side of annoying to weigh in heavily for this one, it scored from everyone except Denmark and Italy and gained 119 points with a 12 from Switzerland and a shocking non-Greek 12 from Cyprus in the process. Just too far back that those two zeros that they scored didn't matter. So next to the land of my birth etc, the United Kingdom of Stuff. Now, we have to assume that at some point in the summer of 1990, Paul Curtis Songs for Hire Limited and Company must have received a very important fax on their car phone. Song Wanted. Must be quite like Give a Little Love Back to the World. But not so much that people start mentioning it in podcasts 30 years later. And so it came to pass that a charming young woman, but obviously not too charming and not too young, was found to perform a rising call for us all to take another stand against global inequality and inaction. This time, having already comprehensively solved the problems of climate change and environmental damage, the important cause was to be the famine of some of those poor countries. The vehicle for this message, up-tempo pop and underwear.
The result? Pretty much everyone in Europe was successfully put off their lunch, and there was enough food for everyone thereafter. Hurrah! 47 points, type this song with Ireland. So, everyone's a winner now. Now, as you all know, my dear listener, I'm well known for my handy songwriting tips, and here's another one you thought you could do without knowing. When you write a song to represent your nation, it is often wisest if you don't watch that old gangster film Titanic, or indeed listen to this before writing it. That's clearly the motivation behind entitling a song after the international distress signal. Either that, or the songwriters knew what trouble they'd be in before they started, but at least it's not entitled CDQ, because that would be preposterous. Elena Petroclu could have been transplanted out of the Greek version of Dynasty. Because she's got all the prerequisites of a 90s super bitch could want. An off-the-shoulder evening dress, long flowing curly hair, and a sort of resting bitch face. Either that, or she's waited so long to get onto stage after all the shenanigans, she got bored of the show and her song before a note had been sung in anger. To be totally fair, the rest of us get that feeling as well as, as ballads go, this one's very ordinary. Musically, there are not many surprises here, and it just plods on to the inevitable climax in similar ways to both Luxembourg and Switzerland do. And in true Phil fashion, I can make a case for all three songs actually being the same piece of music, just slightly differently arranged. I mean, I can. I won't, but I can. What I can do is make a comparison between the song that's just gone, the United Kingdom, and this one. They are about literally the same thing. And there's a big old problem with the world, only this time it's not famine, but we're killing ourselves with carbon dioxide. Said the woman who created a hole in the ozone layer with the amount of hairspray she's used. And despite it being boring and repetitive and not wanting you to save the world, rather hurl yourself off this mortal coil, there's not much else to say about this song, because if the Eurovision Dictionary had a definition of bland, surely Elena's slappable face would adorn the page in that book. 60 points meant this crap ended up in ninth place, with the obligatory 12 from Greece. Italy and conventional are not two words that usually go hand in hand. They won in 1990 with a song essentially about the start of the single market and the guise of us being all together, and then decided to get the winner to host a darn thing 12 months later. Instead of a carbon copy song because they knew the recipe, they went rogue like so many things in this balmy three hours, and chose someone who was equally as big as Toto was. Yeah, now you've stopped guffawing, in all seriousness, Toto was a big artist in Italy at the time. They chose Peppino di Capri. Peppino, born Giuseppe Fiella, had been and currently was massive in Italy. He'd opened the Beatles tour of Italy in 65, he'd won San Remo in 73 and 76, and one could make the argument that in 73, had Italy chosen the San Remo winner instead of picking something else, they could have well gone top 10. By 1991, good old Joe had been in San Remo ten times, so he knew about singing competitions, and you'd hope Ryan knew something as well, though the last few hours would have made you think something rather differently. Peppino was approached by Rye without the need for that public contest thing, and he presented them with something not even they were prepared for. A song. In Neapolitan, no, not a manuscript covered in ice cream, but a song sung in that almost lost romance language of central Italy. Amore solo mare, luce stella 
parole belle, sous parole belle. And if you think that's something different, well, it was. It was the first non-Italian language Italian song in the contest. The performance of the song was something also entirely unique. My dad tells me that 50 singer Jim Reeves' singing style was so relaxed that he could fall asleep singing. The same is true of Peppino, even though he does look like an Italian version of Arthur Daly in the hit TV show Minder. Yes, indeed, Dennis. But he knows his audience, and boy, is he preaching to them. If San Remo is a local song contest for local people, then you can see that Peppino is a perfect exponent of the art. He knows this style of song inside out, and just comes onto stage, sings the song and leaves. Job done. The result? 7th place with 89 points, with a 12 from Portugal and 1 from Finland. Sighs of relief from Rai, and a rapturous round of applause from the Italian crowd. Now this is usually the time where I wrap up, play the theme tune and tell you to tune in next time for more shenanigans, which you can do by the way, and tell your mates to listen to this and other pods, if you like, at our website, or through Mixcloud or YouTube. But this is no ordinary year. 1991's voting sequence is without doubt the most painfully excruciating and yet car-crashingly watchable 50 minutes of television ever produced at a Eurovision production. Well, up until Serbia and Montenegro in final in 2006, and you seriously need to check that out on YouTube. However, back in 91, dodgy telephone lines, even dodgy presentation, a scoreboard that's rarely seen, the points announced in three languages when two just isn't enough, Mr. Neff looking increasingly fraught, anxious or angry depending on which point you view the voting from, and then a last jury climax, this voting sequence did indeed have everything, except any direction from the host. It all ends with Mr. Neff's assistant calmly explaining how Corolla won thereby alienating a generation of Eurofans by, you know, interpreting the rules correctly. And the little pixie comes back on stage and sings a song. What have we unleashed?